Welcome to the Full Minded with Elisabetta podcast, where my mission is to normalize the human experience. I believe there's power in authenticity and building a community immersed in it. I plan on bringing you on an in-depth and transparent journey of my life through solo episodes. I will also be interviewing a range of individuals who are willing to share their unique stories. On this podcast, we will dive into topics such as mental health, heartbreak, loss, change, trauma, self-love, and every other topic that makes up the human experience. While I do my very best to provide you insight and knowledge on these subject matters, this podcast is not a substitute for professional help. I am not a licensed therapist. I am simply a human sharing my experiences with the intent to help people feel less alone. If you are suffering, please consult with a licensed professional. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode. Today I am going to be diving into my prior alcohol addictions and drug use. I am sober now, but I have gotten a lot of questions as of recent on my sobriety, my journey, how I got here today, why I got here today, why I chose to be sober, etc. So I would like to drop an episode with full context. I'm going to be totally authentic with you guys what exactly happened, how it happened. So If you aren't in the best headspace right now, I will preface this episode by saying it will be triggering. Um, So maybe just pause and resume when you do feel like you're in a better headspace. But for those of you that are in a good headspace, buckle up because I'm about to tell you the whole journey of what led me to where I am today and how I got sober. Okay, so let's rewind 13 years. I just had to do the math of that. Wow. Um... (laughs) I am 18, about to turn 19, and I have alcohol for the first time in my life. I remember it was like a Vex cooler, and I was like, what the fuck is this? I'm obsessed. And I mean, it's so interesting to look back on life and see like the first and the last, because you just never know what is going to be the first of something, and you never know when something's going to be the last of something, right? So I never knew that night that I drank a Vex that I would have such an addiction problem for the following almost decade. But I did. I was hooked. I loved the feeling of alcohol. I loved the escape. I loved the version of myself that I felt I could be, which was a more free and less judged version. I feel like alcohol gives everybody that kind of excuse to be who they really want. And then if it's weird or too much, we can just blame it on the alcohol. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it must have just been one too many shots. So I just released my inner freak and then just excused it by saying, whoops, I just absolutely drank too much. (laughs) So I got into a lot of trouble back in the day. I was a little shit. I feel like I was very inconsiderate of other people's emotions, as you generally are if you are a drunk, because you don't really have capacity to deal with other people's emotions or care for anybody else's state. You're really just focused on yourself. You've got the blinders on, and you're focused about making yourself feel good and have a good time and not feel the things that you're needing to feel and heal. So I would say within the first couple years 
of drinking, it definitely got out of control. Because here's the thing, and like I know it's the same for a lot of cultures, a lot of different people around the world, a lot of different age ranges, but for the city that I grew up in, like it was like encouraged to be binge drinking. Like that's just what you did on the weekends. Like you're not going out and getting blackout. What are you doing with your life? Like you were kind of judged if you weren't. So just being in that environment at the time I was in a relationship and that person drank a lot and their family drank a lot. So I was just constantly around it and I was young and naive and I was broken. I was really, really hurting. I'd had a severely abusive childhood, both physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, all of the above. So I was really trying to not feel that shit at all in any way. And alcohol was... I thought at the time a good escape from that and that thought process of alcohol being an escape is what led me into some of the darkest moments in my life because it's not an escape. I'm going to be honest with you right here and now. It's not an escape. It is a temporary bandage to a very deep wound that needs severe attention and healing and I feel like when you drink, you know, you add more pain, more confusion, and less attention to what needs to be healed. Like you're just kind of blurring it and you're not dealing with the shit. So I wasn't prepared for, you know, when I eventually got sober over a decade later, the things that I would have to sit with and heal. Cause they don't just go away. If you're distracted by them, they're still there, you know? So I think that was the biggest life lesson that if I could pass to anyone, it's just that. Like if you're going through something heavy, I would strongly urge you not to drink to cope with it. I mean, you do you, it's your own life. I don't want to tell anyone how to live, but just coming from that experience, it just doesn't help. It just adds so much more pain long-term. And then I feel like it also adds on less accountability. Do you know what I mean? Because you're just using alcohol as an excuse and you're never really taking ownership and, you know, claiming your own feelings and claiming your own healing journey. And just you're kind of living in the victim mindset by being a drunk because you're just like, well, I'm drinking and I'm drunk because of this. And I would oftentimes be like, I'm a drunk because people started to call me out on it. And they were like, Liz, you're like wasted all the time. And I was like, well, I had a fucked up childhood. So like I need to deal with it somehow. And I would say that. And at the time it felt valid and people kind of got off my back about it. But looking back, I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) what the fuck? The other thing I'll mention too is, you know, obviously when you endure abuse of any type, but especially in those critical years of your brain forming, it totally alters the way that you think and act. So On top of my brain already being, you know, altered, distorted, and traumatized, I was now adding poison to it all the time, copious amounts, and it put me in some very strange situations. The combination of feeling like anything, any kind of attention was love, and also being drunk, and, you know, obviously I feel like your guard is down even more. You're kind of less picky with who you surround yourself with. So that combination was lethal. And it put me into some very, very, very sketchy situations. And as I've talked about before on one of my episodes, I have been sexually assaulted a lot. 
And a lot of it was due to that was alcoholism and just thinking that attention was love and putting myself into questionable situations as a result, not saying that I got abused and it was my fault entirely because of it. But I think that when you're traumatized and you're under the influence, you just have less cognitive thinking. There's just no way you're able to be a hundred percent present and pick up on all the signs that you would be able to, if you were sober and working on healing. Another thing that drinking added to was my arguments with people, especially when I was in a relationship. So as most of you know, by now I have borderline personality disorder, very spicy disorder as it is. You add alcohol to that mix. Here's the thing. I was either the funnest time on alcohol ever, like dancing on the tables, getting everybody into trouble. And we were just having the best time. But if one thing went wrong, especially if it involved my romantic partner at the time, all hell broke loose. It was not a fun night. You did not want to drink with me ever again. I promise you that it was just the flip of a switch. And that in itself is really scary because you, you don't know what situation you're going to be in. You don't know the people that you're going to be with. You don't know the environment. So you know, having an emotional dysregulation disorder is already challenging enough sober to manage. But when you're drinking, you know, my therapist used to say you have an emotional satellite dish the size of NASA when you're drinking. Like you are almost just asking and attracting these issues to happen because you cannot, you can barely regulate sober because that was before I had the therapy and the skills and the knowledge. I didn't even know I had BPD at this time. But when you add alcohol to the mix... Oh my God, it just gets so chaotic so quickly. So the years that I'm describing right now were actually taking place in my hometown in Ontario. And then I moved to Moncton, New Brunswick when I was 22, I think. So I had been drinking quite a bit at that time. Never considered sobriety, like absolutely was not on my radar. And I moved away and it was the best thing I ever did. It was good to get out of the city that I was born in. You know, there's a lot of toxicity, a lot of things that I myself needed to escape from. Um, so the move itself was great for me. Living on the East Coast was just very, very cathartic for me in a lot of ways. However, what I did start trying when I did move away was drugs cocaine specifically I had never touched it before and I don't know why it was bigger on the east coast or maybe just the people I was surrounding myself with I don't know um but yeah getting into that was really really bad a very deadly mix because all of a sudden I would be blackout so I wasn't ever one to be able to blackout like I could hold my liquor and I would remember most every single evening but when I started mixing with coke Oh my God, I would literally forget most of the night. I would have no idea. People would be telling me stories about what I did. And sometimes I'm like, are they lying? Like I had no idea. I had no proof, no evidence to what they were saying was either right or wrong, but I didn't remember anything, which then continued putting me in sketchy situations. Luckily I had good friends with me. Um, one of my guy friends to this day, he's like, my bro, my brother, he was always drinking with me and he was always looking out for me. And he made sure I would get home safe. If there was like a guy that was too close to me, he'd come over and be like, hi, what's the deal? <laughs> Who are you? Who the fuck? So it was really, I was blessed in that aspect to have people that were looking out for me and protecting me. But yeah, it was a, it was a deadly mix. I, 
I would never, I would never touch drugs again because of how low I got. So yeah, adding Coke to the mix and having this like surge of energy and this surge of endorphins and dopamine only means one thing. You're going to crash and you're going to crash hard. It was so bad. And I was so hooked that I would, every Sunday would be a repeat. And I was living with a friend at the time and they would have to console me and hold me because I would just basically be withdrawing and having shakes and having panic attacks and being like, take me to the hospital. I'm dying. And they would just be like, no, it's the same thing every week. Less you're just coming off of the drugs. You're just coming off of the booze. And it was like that for months and months at a time. Every single Sunday, I would just be like cold sweats, shaking, freaking out. Um, and wanting her to take me to the hospital. And she just had to keep reminding me like, this is Sunday. This is just what happens on Sunday. And I was like, and that wasn't a wake up call for me. That was just like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And I try to give myself grace. Like I laugh through it because like, it's a bit hard to like even fathom. (laughs) And it's just so wild. And it's sad because I know why I was so fucked up. And I know that you know, I was a torpedo of, of pain that hurt other people and then got hurt more and then just tried to cope with the pain. And I was never comfortable with feeling it. So I know, you know, when I think about that version of her, it breaks my heart because I know how fucking sad she was and how lonely and how hurting she was. But it is hard not to to laugh, to cope with some of the intrusive thoughts that come sometimes. And I remember the things that I did, the people I surrounded myself with, the situations I put myself in. And I was like, what the absolute fuck list? Like, what the fuck? Anyways. So yeah, that continued for years and years. And then I'm trying to really think of the first time that I ever was like, I should try and be sober. I think it was, I definitely went out with intention to kill myself. I was driving like a maniac. It was raining. I had already texted the person I was dating and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't do life. Tell my family goodbye. Like I love them. My friends, I can't do this. And I remember just driving so fast and wanting to just veer off And I couldn't stop thinking of my siblings. I'm the oldest of four and the kids are my life. They're single-handedly the reason I'm still here because if I didn't have them, I don't think I would have, I would have stopped. Um, But yeah, so I remember vividly just picturing their little faces and I just couldn't do that to them. So that is what saved me that time. Oh, it's going to be an emotional episode. Um, But yeah. I remember just pulling over and just breaking down and just crying for hours and hours and hours. Like, I just feel like for so long, I was just maxed with the most amount of pain. I felt like a human could withstand. And I was always just at that threshold. And that was a breaking point for me. And I believe it was after that, that I tried to do a sober week because I was like, something is not right here, obviously. And maybe, you know, just maybe the alcohol is, um, affecting it worse, you know, making it harder to deal, making it harder to cope, harder to make logical decisions. So I did a sober week for the first time in my life and it was fucked. I'm not even going to lie to you guys. It was 
so fucked up. I was so, I couldn't leave bed. I was just a mess. All I did was cry and hyperventilate and just sweat. And it was terrible. And I remember like the week was ending at like midnight on the Sunday and I waited until that moment and then chugged a bottle of wine because I was like, no, this is not for me. Absolutely not. We're not feeling this shit. (laughs) Nope. Went back into it, tried to monitor it a little bit, like tried to not binge drink as much as I was. I thought maybe if I don't, you know, drink three bottles of wine I'll be a bit better. So I do remember like trying to get a hold of my portion control. But the thing is with addiction, it's, oh, it's so much more than that. It goes so much deeper than that. So so much healing needs to happen. Sobriety needs to happen for you to get a hold of any addiction issue you have, in my opinion and in my experience. And I want to paint as clear as a picture as possible for you guys, because right now I'm envisioning all these moments that happened and, you know, they were dark. There was just so many moments where I was on the bathroom floor, like cutting and just self-harming, beating the shit out of myself because I hated myself and I was attaching myself to men that were unavailable and didn't treat me that great. And I didn't treat them that great either. It was just like a toxic, vicious cycle of abusive behavior towards others and myself. And it was so dark. Guys, it was so dark. I had one of my partners who used to hide like the knives, hide the straighteners, hide anything that I could harm myself with when I was in an episode because like I just didn't care. I didn't care who I was around. If I wanted to self-harm, I would. It was so, so, so dark. And I'm so glad I'm not there anymore. I'm just like taking a breath and looking around and just so grateful that this is not my life anymore. This is not my everyday nightmare. So I continued drinking and I remember dressing up for as a box of wine that year for Halloween, which is, I mean, I looked cute, but it was, it was just, it became my whole personality. I was the girl with boxed wine. I'm pretty sure my Twitter handle was like the boxed wine gal or something ridiculously embarrassing like that. And it just became my whole personality. And when you wrap that up with trauma and you don't really know yourself outside of your trauma story and then your your current trauma story your coping strategy which was very unhealthy it's kind of hard to not feel like you'd completely lose yourself if you let go of those things and I think that is why I held on for as long as I did because I was like no, no, I'm the box wine girl. Like I've, I've been abused. I need to drink. This is how I cope. And that was my story. And I didn't want it to change because I felt like if it changed, it wasn't valid and it didn't happen. And there was a big part of me that was so angry and so hurt. And I needed not people to see that I was hurt or maybe I did. Maybe I did. I just needed people to know that like, you know, I was done wrong. So I was allowed to do wrong. And, you know, which obviously is not how I feel now, but at the time it was just what I thought, what I believed and got me into so much trouble and so added so much more pain to my life and to the lives of others, um, sending love and healing to those I affected during that season of my life because holy absolute fuck, that was not okay. The way that I acted, the way that I was treating people. Yeah, I'm super, super sorry to anyone who's listening who knew me at that time in my life and I haven't already said sorry to you. Very sorry. From the bottom of my heart, honestly, I was a lot to deal with. 
And if you stuck around and you're still here today, and my friend, thank you. Love you so much. Appreciate you. Definitely had this conversation with you in person, but yeah, I appreciate the people that stuck through it. Alrighty. So fast forward a couple more years and I started dating somebody who was very in tune with their emotions and who was not an addict. And he was just like the most gentle, kind human I had ever met. And it was the first time in my life that I had been loved like that, like where I didn't feel like I was in the way and I felt genuinely cared for and protected. So was I ready to get into a relationship? Absolutely not. I had just ended my trauma bond relationship like three months prior. I was still drinking. I was on a bender. I was a little bit better. You know, I could go days without drinking. I wasn't, I never like drank. Oh, I shouldn't say I never drank at work. <laughs> Damn it. I definitely drank at work. <laughs> I just thought about that. I guess it depended on the job, but like, yeah, when you're working in the bar scene, Sometimes it's hard not to drink at work. I think you can all attest to that, but it wasn't ever, I guess I meant to say like, it wasn't ever getting in the way of my work. Like I would show up, I'd be hungover or like still drunk from the night before, but I would always show up to work. So I was a very high functioning alcoholic. And, um, so at the time I felt like I was thriving. I felt like I was doing good. Cause I'm like, I'm going to work. I'm doing this. And I actually remember just had a thought I remember the first time that I was like, wait, am I an alcoholic? Because like people had maybe said jokes about it or said things, but no one had ever like sat me down and been like, listen, I think you have a fucking problem. But one time I sat myself down and I was like, listen, I think we have a fucking problem. And I remember asking one of my friends at the time and I was like, do you think I'm um, an alcoholic? And I remember her response was no, because you still like go to work and everything. And I remember being disturbed by that response at the time because I was like, okay, I still do feel like I'm an alcoholic, but maybe a high functioning one. So I actually did the research and I took a test. <laughs> I took an online test while drunk in my bed, drinking f like straight out the bottle. And the internet was like, yeah, sis, <laughs> you are an alcoholic. And I was like, fuck. And so that's when I really started to like, at least internally label myself that. So I tried to get a bit of a grip on it and it wasn't an everyday thing. But when I went out, I still went hard. Like I still had that portion control issue where I was like, I couldn't just have a glass of wine. To me, that seemed foolish and silly for anyone to ever be like, I'll just have one drink. Like what the fuck, you know, go hard or go home was my motto. <clears throat> I don't still feel that way now. Obviously, if you can just have one drink and go home, oh my God, hats off to you. You know, what a life. I think that's an incredible skill. I was just never given that ability. So I just kind of hated on people who did and were able to do that because I was like, well, I can't, so fuck you. But yeah, so fast forward, I'm talking about being in that healthy relationship again with somebody who actually cherished me and loved me. And it was within that relationship that he took me by the hand one day. He sat me down. I was at the top of the stairwell in the place I was living. I remember the details of the wall, the details of the carpet, everything, because this was the first time in my life that somebody had actually been like, I think you have a problem and I think you have a problem that's bigger than you, but this is how he framed it. And I will never forget this. He was like, Liz, I don't think drinking is it for you. We all love who you are, the version of you when you're sober, but when you drink and you you know, do drugs like you 
lose that part of yourself. It's no longer there. It's like looking at like, you know, a blank slate, like it's just gone and it's just not it. You know, you are just such an amazing person and you have so much more potential than what you're living. And I don't, I don't want to see you do drugs anymore. I can't handle it. Like me personally, it's just not something I've seen for myself or my, my partner. So like if you choose to continue doing drugs, it's not a relationship I can see myself in. So I actually quit drugs because of the relationship I was in at the time. And then the sobriety chat happened and he was like, you know, this is how I feel. Like, it's just not you, Liz. It's just not you. You can just do so much better. And I had never been told that before. You know, I think people had joked about it because it's a touchy subject. And I understand, you know, the the perspective of other people looking in and just seeing like, I'm a tornado, like I'm a torpedo of fucking emotion. And like, it was also very much like people, I'm sure they felt they walked on eggshells around me. Right. So I can understand not wanting to be confrontational with a person like that, but for him to do that, (laughs) you know, knowing how hot headed I can be and knowing how deep I was into the addiction was like such a beautiful act of love above all else that I've ever experienced. And I still like treasure that, you know, and thank him because, oh my God, like I'm sober. Thank you. Thank you. I honestly needed that. It was the most amazing way to do that. And I think if anyone's listening and you have a partner or somebody that you care about that is struggling with addiction or alcoholism, I think using that gentle, loving approach is the best way to do it. Like you scream in the heat of an argument, like you're an alcoholic at someone, I promise you we will fucking shut down and never talk to you again. Like it is just not the right way to go about it. And obviously emotions, you know, can get in the way and you can get heated. And of course that's valid, but I would urge you to be very gentle with your delivery when you're talking to somebody who has addiction issues. And so, yes, I remember from that point on, I actively worked on taking sober breaks. So I think I did a week right after that conversation. And I remember during that conversation crying my eyes out because I was like, I don't want to give this up. I know I should. I know it's killing me and I know it's killing everyone around me, but I don't want to give it up. For me, it felt like a safety blanket. For me, it felt like the only thing consistent in my life that made me feel good ever. So it was a very hard decision to make to be sober. So emotional. But we're not editing that out because that's the human experience, baby. We're allowed to feel. Um, So yeah, I remember trying to do a week sober after that. And it was easier than the first time I did it. A little bit. And it was easier having that support from him. And knowing that like he was just like, I just like love you so much. I want the best for you. And like, this is why, you know, I'm pushing you to do this. So that was really cool. So having that support really helped. And then I think the next stretch I did was two weeks. Like I drank again and then I went on a break. And then the next stretch I did was three weeks. And then I eventually did a month, which was really cool. And then um, I felt like I was doing really good. So I was like, you know, after my month sober, I had more drinks. And I remember 
I'm going to be real with y'all. I have not told this story to everybody, but I think this story needs to be shared because I think the people that suffer, you know, from self-harm, from mental illness, from borderline, from alcoholism, anything, I think y'all need to hear this because I want you to know that you're not alone. It's why I do what I do, why I am so vulnerable. But it was New Year's Eve. And I was in the relationship with that guy still. And one thing I will say is, you know, he was such a sweet and caring person. And sometimes that care was overextended to other people. And I didn't feel I was a priority. Also would like to say that I have borderline personality disorder. And, you know, that skews my vision sometimes and can make the emotion seem much more intense and much more meaning to them when there's not that there on that person's end. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to not say it was all his fault. It was definitely shared responsibility that night. And he was really fixated on making sure this random drunk girl like got home safe and was taken care of. And I was not having any of it because I felt like I should be the priority. Anyways, one thing led to another. He ended up taking her home, tried to find her home. She was like so drunk and didn't know where she was. And I absolutely spiraled for me. Like, let me explain what BPD feels like for a moment. For those that don't know, being in an episode, like a live episode, it literally feels like you want to crawl out of your own skin and die. Like almost immediately. I think it's still to date one of the most painful disorders they've they've said because of how deeply we feel our emotions, but like you just have so much pain that fills up so quickly. You, the first thing you want to do is die because there's nowhere to put that pain and you're not really sure what the fuck to do with it, how it came about. Like it could be the smallest thing for me. One of my biggest triggers is like a partner leaving the house without saying goodbye. I'm not even talking if we're in a fight, just like I would have, you know, my, after learning this about myself, I would have my exes wake me up from a dead sleep to be like, I'm leaving the house. I love you. I'll be back later. Bye. I know they're not leaving me because the disorder is stemmed in abandonment fear, right? I know they're not leaving me, but it's like my brain couldn't register it. It was so bizarre. So for him to take off that night with another girl, even though there was nothing going on romantically, my brain went from zero to a hundred. Plus I'm fucked up. I'm super, super wasted. It's the end of the night. I'm the most drunk I'm, be- I'm going to be. I lost my mind. I didn't know how to cope. And then <laughs> his fucking phone died. His fucking phone died like five minutes after he left the house. So I didn't know where he was when he was returning. Oh my God. It was still to date. One of the most triggering and painful memories I have. Absolutely. And at the time, like it's strange because when you're in an episode, it's not even that you're wanting to self-harm per se. It's that you're wanting to release the pain in some other way. Like you're wanting to just, I don't know. (laughs) I don't even know if I have enough words to explain it. So I ran across the street. I remember sitting in the snow because it was winter I had my bottle of wine with me, obviously, and I was just like chugging it. And then I just got so angry that I just hit myself in the forehead with the bottle and it cut me open quick. And I just started like pouring blood. I was drinking. So my blood was thinner. So I was just a mess. I just remember like putting my head in the snow because I was like, this makes sense. His phone died. I went ballistic. I was living with a friend at the time. He was trying to calm me down, but there was nothing like 
there was nothing that can be done when you're so far in an episode. Um, the only person that can calm you down, obviously I can calm myself down now because I've had a lot of therapy, but at the time it was only your partner. And actually one of the questions they ask you when they're diagnosing you for borderline is if your house is on fire, but you're in a fight with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your partner, which are you attending to first? And without a doubt, I was like, uh, my partner, of course. They're like, but your house is on fire. I'm like, I don't give a fuck because I could not capacitate giving a fuck about anything else other than my partner in that moment, that beef that we had, that argument that I needed to feel okay with that person before I could even cope with doing anything else. So my friend was trying so hard to calm me down and I, I, I was like manic. I couldn't. I was just like, I remember I put my head through the drywall after I had hit my head on a bottle. So let me, it was, it was chaotic. It was chaotic guys. That night was chaotic. He ended up coming home. Um, and then I was just like a mess and bleeding everywhere. And then he's traumatized. He's like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? It was just so chaotic. And then I woke up the next day severely concussed and I had to call into work and then I had to come up with a fabricated lie over why I had this giant ass cut on my forehead and it was winter so my lie was that I slipped and fell on ice landed on my forehead and I was concussed as a result and I remember my boss giving me a hard time because obviously I was their employee I was an alcoholic and it was the day after new year's so they were like, okay, Liz, you're concussed. And I was like, no, I for real am, but not for the reasons I gave. So I remember I woke up, he was like, how do you feel? And I was like, no, 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 not okay. He's like, do you still want to die? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, okay, I'm going to take you to therapy. So he puts me in the car, the fucking angel he, he was, and drives me to therapy sits with me in the therapy session. We talk about what happened. I tell my therapist, I remember for the first time, cause like my therapist has probably heard a lot of shit, not only from me, but other patients. That was the first time I was ever embarrassed to share a story. I've never even publicly shared the story with like a lot of my friends. So this is big for me to record it on a, in an episode and send it out into the world. Cause like it's intense, but it's real and it's real life and it's what happens. So, um, I'm not about trying to hide it. So I remember just feeling so ashamed and so embarrassed and so just like, you know, I just done a sober month. I had just done a sober month. How am I back in the same fucking place? That was a big moment for me because I realized, you know, having that conversation with my my partner at the time the next day over his intentions of trying to make sure this drunken girl got home safe was just so different than the way that I pictured it in my drunken dysregulated mind he's a good person and he's not somebody who would ever cheat or do anything so for me to think that he was was obviously you know a piece of it was my borderline but a bigger piece of it was the alcohol so I think that was the first time for me that I really was like Okay, so it's definitely the alcohol that's causing a lot more friction, tension, and like blurriness in my life. So it was that morning that I woke up concussed in therapy and I was like, I'm done. I'm done for a little bit. And at the time, I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know how long that was going to be. I just knew that 
it needed to stop. So at that point, I was already sober from drugs. And then I was like, it's time to be sober from alcohol too for the foreseeable future. So off I took on my sobriety journey. And I think it was like a couple months in that I was like, I think I want to do a full sober year. I think that would be such an incredible goal. It will give me time to really heal from the shit that I've obviously been putting on the back burner and not sitting with and dealing with, but also it'll give me a full range of months, a full range of holidays, birthdays, etc., um, to sit sober and to just do non-alcoholic wine or just try and be present and try and enjoy myself sober. So that was the goal. And then COVID hit <laughs> in March and I was trapped in the fucking house sober. <laughs> and I, looking back, I'm like, was that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it was, I think it was more a good thing because I think being trapped in the house, though a lot of people did increase their alcohol and substance abuse in COVID, for me, it made it a bit easier because I wasn't surrounded by a bunch of people drinking. I wasn't invited to all these parties and the clubs and ragers. So for me, I just kind of learned to water my plants and draw. And it was definitely good for me to be trapped inside a house during that time. Was it hard as fuck? Oh my God. I almost broke five months in. I almost broke down and just quit. And it was one of my good friends who was like, you have come so far less your five months don't fuck it up over one bad day. Because COVID was hard. It was heavy, as you guys know. And that relationship that I was in slowly turned bad. And I think his mental health just started deteriorating. And my I was just dealing with all these demons that I had been, you know, kind of hiding away for all these years. So it was just such a mix. And I think I was just not the best partner. And I think he started to become not the best partner. And I think he started to resent me. And it was just, it kind of got really toxic towards the end. So we are stuck in a house together. And I will say though, the one thing that did help and save me was a few months before I had gotten sober, I had checked myself into a hospital because I was like, I'm not well. I didn't feel like anyone believed me to the extent that I needed them to, that I wasn't well. And even when the paramedics arrived, they had said, you know, we think that you're okay. So we're just gonna, we're just gonna leave you here. And I was like, I call 911 because I want to die. I am not okay. And if you leave me, I will like literally cause a fucking scene. And they're like, okay, yeah, I guess you can come with us. Still don't understand that to this day. I do not understand that. Like why risk if someone's saying that, like, did they think I was, anyway, it's not important what they thought. So they bring me to the hospital. They, give me a pill to chill the fuck out. Cause I was quite manic at the time. And they say like, somebody will be with you in the morning. Like you can sleep here. And I was like, okay. I remember going to sleep, the sound of everybody like moving the hospital carts and just like random noises. I would wake up throughout the night, just sweating. And then the next morning, the psychologist came to see me. And he's like, good morning. Unless it's like fucking 6am. I'm like, okay. And he assesses me and he's talking to me and he's like, you definitely have borderline personality disorder without a doubt. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, bro. So he's like, and you seem to be trying to do a lot of the work and, you know, using tools. And I was like, yeah, I really am trying to not 
kill myself. I'm really trying to stay afloat. Like, I really want to be here. But the disorder is just so fucking painful that sometimes I just can't cope. And that's what makes me want to die. So he's like, I'm going to put you on a wait list with the Canadian Mental Health Association and they'll assign you a caseworker who can give you therapy that's designed specifically for people who have borderline personality disorder. And I was like, okay, this sounds amazing. So that was a couple months before the new year. Then that new year's evening happened that I told you guys about. And it's March. COVID is just starting to happen and we go into lockdown and I get a call from the caseworker saying, I can't see you in person, but I can do phone sessions. How do you feel about that? And I was like, I'll take anything I can get. So the therapy was really, really cool. So dialectical behavior therapy was designed by Marsha. I'm blanking on her last name right now, but she herself has BPD. She attempted suicide years ago. It didn't work. And she decided to change her whole fucking life and write a book on how to cope with having BPD. So this therapy gives us skills that we're not born with. So a lot of people have, you know, the ability to be triggered by something and then say, okay, but this, 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 and work through it. BPD people lack that middle ground. They lack the gray area. We're very, okay, everything is great or it's the fucking worst period. So it was really, really helpful and life-changing to have this therapy while being trapped in the house. I would like look forward to Mondays because that was my day and I would take notes and then they would give you homework. And it was just very, very amazing, very intense therapy, a lot of work, a lot of homework. You had to kind of journal how your feelings were. If you had any urges to, you know, commit suicide, any attempts, any like drug use, any, they wanted to know if you took Advil, Tylenol, like it was very, very thorough, but I needed that you know, cause I had only had general therapy up until that point and it felt like something was missing. Like it was just scratching the surface, but I knew that I wasn't getting or reaping the benefits from therapy, like the way that I should, but, but DBT definitely changed that for me. So that helped a lot. And I remember within two weeks of therapy, my roomie was like, Liz, I notice a difference. And my partner said the same thing. And they both were like, we're super proud of you. I remember two months after they said, you're starting to evolve into a different person. Like you're starting to be unrecognizable from who you used to be. And I remember being like, ah, like, that's such a cool, amazing, empowering thing to hear. So I was just hooked, right? Like I didn't want to stop. So it was every single Monday for, I think it was eight months, was it eight months it took. Eventually when COVID, um, we were allowed to leave the house again because yeah, COVID didn't stop for years, but I was able to go in and meet her in person and I was able to finish off my sessions in person. So that was amazing. That changed my life. And we got out of COVID. The relationship that I was in with my partner at the time ended up ending. It was very devastating, but it was necessary for the sake of both of our mental health, our well-being, the direction of our lives. We were just in completely different places. And we went our separate ways and I made the decision to finally move out West, something that I had wanted to do for actually ever. And I remember going into work one night and asking my friend, Jason, as many of y'all know, he's like my bestie, literally my sidekick. He's amazing. We live together. We do everything together. So he was working, he was bartending and I was serving and I was like, yo, do you want to move to the West coast with me? And he was like, yeah, actually I do. And I was like, okay, cool. How about in a couple months? He's like, how about six months? So we have a bit more time. 
But in my brain, I was worried about another lockdown and I didn't want to get trapped where I didn't want to be. So I was like, how about two months? So within two months, I had sold my car. We took his car. We packed up all of our shit into one vehicle and drove across the country. We ended up living in the Okanagan for a bit and a year. We worked at this bougie resort. We saved up a, a bunch of money. It's actually when I started launching my business was when we were living there. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty incredible and all while sober. And then, so I finished up my sober year. We were living in the Okanagan at the time and I made the decision. I don't know why <laughs> looking back now, knowing what I know now, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. but I made the decision that I wanted to reintroduce alcohol back into my life, but in moderation, I wanted to see if I could do it. You know, I think it was a bit of a challenge for myself. Cause I'm like, if I just did a sober year, like literally just by myself on my own, I feel like I can do anything. So maybe I can drink within moderation and yeah, no. So I did start drinking again. I remember, uh, Jason bought me like a really nice bottle of champagne and we celebrated and I had my first sip of alcohol and a year and we were both like, wow, this is really intense. And I remember within 30 minutes of alcohol touching my lips to getting into my brain, I felt weird and sad and scared. And I felt all these emotions surface that I felt like I had dealt with. They're all of a sudden up and I'm feeling them all again. And I'm crying about my ex in the shower. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm like, this is the shit that I don't like. It just amplifies everything and kind of like falsifies things. I don't think that I was necessarily sad about my ex. I think I was just drunk. Do you know what I mean? Like, anyway, so I kept um, my boundaries in place for a good chunk of that year where I had rules. Like if I was having a bad day, I absolutely could not drink. I couldn't, I couldn't use alcohol to cope. It was only celebratory. So I did really well with that actually for the first eight months of the year, I'd say. And then I ended up you know, um, moving to Texas for a bit because I dated someone who lived there and he didn't party a ton, but when I moved there, we definitely partied a lot because we were like, yay, we're finally meeting, etc., and getting to live together. And there was a lot of exciting things happening at that time. So we were like, let's get wasted often. And then same shit happened. I ended up falling into this rut. We ended up going to Cabo and I drank every single day. I came back. I fell into like a four month depression. Oh my God, guys, it was brutal. And I was like, I can't do this shit. This is so fucked. And then unfortunately, um, similar breakdown happened where I just like, we were drinking. There was something that happened. I was triggered and I immediately just went to like, I can't cope. I want to die. I want to die. And the next morning that I woke up from that, I was like, no, nope, not again. And I have been sober since that morning because I'm not doing that. I know at this point that my life is so valuable and I'm so valuable and I'm worth so much more. Little less and big less is worth so much more than settling for that life. It's not for me. And it's okay that it's not for me. I no longer have FOMO. I no longer feel like I'm not cool because I'm not drinking. I mean, it took a long time for me to get to that place because I had to basically rebrand myself. I was no longer the boxed wine gal. 
And so for a while, I felt like a wallflower. I didn't feel as outgoing, quote unquote, as I felt when I was drinking. And it took a long time, but I can comfortably say that I'm the happiest I have ever fucking been in my life. And I'm sober as fuck. Like, I don't even smoke weed. I don't like nothing, guys. Nothing. Nothing. I am like the most sober of all time. And it's so interesting because I just never seen that for myself. Like I, you know, towards the end of it and people realizing that I had an issue, me realizing I had an issue, I think it was something I thought could be cool, but I never thought I'd be fully sober. I always thought I would be able to manage it and be, you know, drinking here and there or just for celebratory evenings. But to be this sober and this happy, because the thing is what happens is it does get easier a hundred percent. The more events that pass, the more social gatherings you go to forcing yourself to be sober, the stronger you get, the more confident you feel in yourself in general. Like I just recently went on a solo trip to Asia, as you all know, because I can't stop talking about it because literally it was the best. And I was like having the best time at the clubs there sober. I was the most hydrated bitch in 20 yards and I was having the best time. I was dancing. I didn't care what people thought of me. You just build so much more confidence, authentic and genuine confidence in yourself when you eliminate alcohol. Because like I said at the beginning of this episode, so much of our society and I feel like our confidence as a whole is built on substance abuse and is, you know, you can unleash because you're drinking and you can be silly and you can act wild and you can act yourself because you're drinking and it's an excuse. If somebody doesn't like it, you can just say, well, it's the alcohol. But when you're sober, that's just you. That's just authentically you. And it's such a powerful move to one, be sober, to two, be sober in this day and age where alcohol is shoved down our throats and everyone's like happy hour, happy hour. The most sought after emotion is labeled, you know, with drinking poison. That's just absolutely fucked, (laughs) obviously. But yeah, it's been, it's been a game changer guys. It'll be two years in February and it's like four years for drugs that I've been clean, but almost two years for alcohol, you know, consecutively, which is just so impressive. And like I said, it's, it feels like it's not even my life. Like it just feels like a dream life. If you knew me back then, you really don't know me now because I'm just such a different version of myself. I'm so much more healed. And that's the thing too, you become, the more healed you become, the more you love yourself and the less you need outside attention, um, outside substances, anything like that, because you love yourself enough that you're like, I don't need anyone to praise me. I don't need anyone to tell me I'm doing a good job. I'm doing a sick job. Look at me go. So it's just all. And for me, I couldn't heal when I was drinking. So the sobriety led me to sit with my emotions, heal them, feel them. And then from healing them, I, you know, gained so much respect and love for myself. I was like, you're a bad bitch to just sit through that shit and think about what happened to you and cope with it and get your ass to therapy and deal with it the right way. Like that takes a lot of strength. It's not for the weak and it's certainly possible. And I want everybody who's struggling with any type of addiction to know that it's absolutely possible to rewire your brain. It is. You're not too far gone, no matter what age you're at. There is, you know, resources. I would recommend AA if you don't think that you can do it on your own. I would definitely recommend finding a therapist that is a good fit for you before you embark on a sober journey. Make sure you've got a supportive group of friends because 
I will say one thing too, when I became sober, I lost a lot of quote unquote friends, more so drinking friends than anything. So that was hard too, because I feel like I was just grieving this whole past life and version of myself, which was all I had ever known. But I'm telling you, once you push past those uncomfortable shit feelings, it gets so much better. I think of it as like when you're in an ice bath and you know, like you're emerging, you're like everything in your body is screaming at you to get out and then you sit with it and the euphoria hits. That is sobriety. That is so much of just good discipline in life in general, you know, saying no to the immediate pleasures for the long-term cause. Like that is huge. That is something I practice and preach nonstop. It is changed my life being disciplined and being sober. But yeah, this was a really good episode. I was kind of in a weird funk this morning and I just didn't really feel like recording one at all. I just kind of wanted to lay in bed and just be like a little potato, which is okay to do sometimes, but I did need to record an episode today and I was just lacking motivation. And I ended up getting this DM from this person who was like, Hey, I found your content through the discover page and it's helped me so much like want to stay alive. I had a suicide attempt when I was 18 and I still feel guilt over that, but I just wanted to say thank you for doing what you're doing. That message not only like just exploded my heart, but it made me ball and it gave me the motivation to jump on the mic today and record. Cause I'm like, this is so much bigger than my bad day. And my, you know, feeling off right now, this is a movement that I'm trying to create so that people feel like safe to talk about their struggles and they don't feel like they can suffer in silence and they can be like, okay, well, if Alyssa's just released an entire podcast episode on how much she used to drink and do drugs and fucking fuck her life up, maybe I can get help. Maybe I can talk about how I feel I'm lost and I feel like I'm not okay. Like that's the whole point of it, you know? So Thank you to that person who sent in that message and it meant the world to me to get that. And it just means the world to me that you guys feel you can be so vulnerable and honest with me. Like that's such an honor and that I don't take lightly. So I appreciate you all always for your love and support and for you tuning into the podcast, for you supporting mindful mode, my business, all of the above. I love y'all. And please, please, please feel free to submit any questions. If you want me to answer, you know, more about this, either on the podcast or through DM, you can ask all your questions on the website, www.fullmindedpodcast.com. And then you can also shoot me a DM too, but I would say probably do it through the website because I haven't been seeing all my DMs lately. They're getting a bit flooded and I would love to be able to hear and answer your questions. So probably through the website would be the best, but yeah, guys, thanks so much for listening to me talk about this. This was a very beautiful, emotional, cathartic episode to release. And I'm really happy with it. So thanks so much for tuning in and have a wonderful rest of your days. And until next time. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. I loved having you. If you wish to support this podcast, please follow us so you never miss an episode. You can also find us on social media at Full Minded Podcast. Please visit our website at www.fullmindedpodcast.com to submit all your questions. 
If you wish to be a guest on this podcast, please fill out the form on our website to apply. Your continued support means the world, so thank you again for taking the time out of your day to tune into Full Minded with Elisabetta. Until next time, be kind to yourselves and remember that there is power in owning our imperfect and messy lives. It's all a part of the human experience and you're not alone in it.